0: Hello and welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus and on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at News Talk Radio. Today is Wednesday, July twenty fifth, 2012. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and Writers on Writing is dedicated to the art and business of books. This morning my guests are Steve Kemper and Bridget Hoyda. First up is Steve Kemper. Steve has been a freelance journalist for more than 30 years. His first book, Codename Ginger, the story behind Sedgway and Dean Kamen's quest to invent a new world, published by Harvard Business School Press in 2003, was selected by Barnes & Noble for its Discover Great New Writers Award. Harper published the paperback under the title, Reinventing the Wheel. Steve has written for Smithsonian, National Geographic, National Geographic Adventure, National Geographic Traveler, Outside, Wall Street Journal, Yankee, National Wildlife, The Ecologist, Plenty, and Plenty More, actually. Um, He's one of the uh, most published journalists I know. And his new book, A Labyrinth of Kingdoms, 10,000 Miles Through Islamic Africa, um, is published by Norton. Was just published, actually, in June. Hi, Steve. Hi, Barbara. Great to talk to you about your book, about Labyrinth of Kingdoms. Talk about how the book came about.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, it came about partly out of crises and and partly out of interest. Um, As you know, to be a freelancer several years ago when the economy imploded became very, very difficult. And I started looking around for other things to do aside from magazine work, which was drying up. And one of the things that um, I thought about uh, was history. I, I love reading history, but I'd never written it, and this fellow Barth caught my attention and sucked me in, and I, I went with it, and it, so far, it's, it, I've enjoyed it.
0: So how did you find him? I mean, how did how did you discover him?
1: Well, I, I, I read a lot about Africa and about exploration, and, and I was reading a book of dispatches by a famous Polish foreign correspondent named Ryszard Kepuczynski who wrote Shaw of Shaws and The Emperor, and a couple of books that your audience may have heard of. This was a book all about Africa called The Shadow of the Sun. And he was walking through Timbuktu in this this one story, and he saw a plaque that said, "This is where Heinrich Barth stayed in 1853 and 1854." And he called him. He called Barth, one of the world's greatest travelers, who had spent five years in the Sahara exploring had escaped death many times had suffered tremendously had come home with a vast amount of knowledge and yet was unappreciated and died bitter at a young age and to me that sounded like uh, it sounded like a very dramatic story
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i'd never heard of barth so you know the way we are we something snags our curiosity we start looking into it and barth just kept getting in my way getting in my way and finally i let him have his way and wrote a proposal about him
0: What struck me, um, one of the things that struck me actually was that Barth did this incredible journey during a time when it wasn't all that easy to travel, especially (laughs) to such places, you know?
1: That's for sure. There there were no hotels, there was nothing, um, no amenities, of course, of any sort. In fact, the Europeans barely knew what was there at the time, and, um, And that's that's just the physical side of it. There's also the 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 people side of it. It was kind of wild and and unruly in many areas. There were kingdoms and sheikdoms and sultanates and everything, but they didn't have much control over their territory beyond the city limits. So there were, and then of course there's the animals and the diseases and the bacteria and everything else that goes along with it. So no, it was a very uncomfortable way to travel. Exploring is by nature, I guess. um, you know, it, it, it's not four-star.
0: No. <laughs> it's amazing what, what, you know, what all of the early explorers and, and, and you know, and guys like Barth did. You know, I mean, we, you know, fly somewhere and complain about airports, right, or complain about how long it's taking and, and just imagining, you know, their journeys and how how they did what they did. It's just really kind of incredible.
1: Oh, I, I completely agree. You know, you, you, you think of the old, When men were men and all that, but boy, it's true. I could never. I would have been broken within a month if I had tried to do what Barth did. And I like adventure travel. I've, I've done some what I think are tough things, but I'm a pampered 21st century male compared to, to these guys who were often starving, were often in danger, under tremendous stress in every possible way, biologically, physically, um, psychologically, and yet at the same time. Barth managed to write a daily journal um filled with ethnography with with the cultures with 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 measurements he was he was making maps he was measuring altitudes he was measuring the depth of wells he was he was the the currents in rivers he was doing everything and at the same time he was sick hungry and besieged i don't i really it, it's astonishing
0: now, the map on the inside um, cover is that. Was that one of his maps, or was that something the publisher recreated?
1: That is from the German edition of of his great five volume mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. and it was made by another German named Augustus Petermann, who was a famous cartographer in the middle of the nineteenth century.
0: Interesting. You are listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm talking with Steve Kemper. His book that we're talking about is *A Labyrinth of Kingdoms: Ten Thousand Miles Through Islamic Africa*, published by Norton. Now, you drew on Barth's letters, journals, and um, you yourself traveled there.
1: Well, I, I traveled. I did part of, of Barth's route. I wanted to be able to uh, have some physical, sensory data that I could use to recreate his trip. So. I did travel across the north of Nigeria um, from a a large city, Kano. It's about 5 million people, which I'd never heard of until until um, I read Barth, to Lake Chad. And then I also went to Timbuktu, um, some of the places I couldn't get into because of political troubles at the time that I was doing the the traveling research, such as uh, Niger and Libya, were off-bounds, out-of-bounds farming.
0: How much time did you spend over there?
1: I was only over there for about three weeks altogether, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I went to to London and, and did a lot of work in the in the archives, mostly at the, the National Archives, but also at the Royal Geographical Society and the British Library.
0: So then, you know, you talked about how you wrote a proposal. How much research did you need to do before it became a proposal? And did you travel before you got the deal? Before you got the book deal?
1: Oh no! You you know you, we we try to do it as as inexpensively as we can <laughs> and make it as exciting as we can. So I read the I read his book. That's the thing that I resisted doing because it's thirty five hundred pages long, mm-hmm. and uh, I I tried to convince myself I didn't really need to read the whole thing to write the proposal because it would take so long. But of course there was really no way around it. So I read that book and uh, did some research about Barth uh, himself, and there there wasn't very much, and that's that was good for me because I didn't have to, to read very much material and then I wrote an exciting proposal and it, it worked, that's, that's all I did
0: So then the proposal consisted of I'm guessing you know, a certain number of, of pages from the hoped for book, future book and then what marketing stuff or bi- biographical material on you or comparison page, what did, what did that look like?
1: the uh, the proposal was it it's it, I'm trying to remember now but um I'm sure I had some sort of dramatic opening and then went into who Barth was why he was important and then I did a, a chapter outline um, which introduced some of the main characters who would who would be in the book and made them sound as as interesting as possible of course and then um, that was about it i did I did the marketing uh the comparisons and there weren't there weren't any there was not nothing about Barth to compare to, but there were plenty of books about obscure historical people who uh, people wanted to read about such as David Grant's book about Percy Fawcett uh, Laura Hillenbrand's books or often that way um, there there are comparisons out there to to convince publishers I know you've never heard of them and the public hasn't but mm-hmm. it still could be a seller for you
0: mm-hmm So then, um, the proposal, is it something that an agent marketed for you or sent to editors or did you send it straight to Norton or how'd that go?
1: No, I have an agent and in in fact I was working on another book proposal with her at the time that I casually mentioned Barth to her in in one of our conversations. I'd already written that proposal in fact and uh, we were about to shop it around and, um, and I mentioned this guy, Barth, that I'd been reading about. And she said, well, why don't you write about him instead? He sounds more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I resisted that, too, of course. Um, but she was right. Um, it worked out better.
0: What a, a good per- perceptive agent, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
1: agree. Her name is uh, Deborah Grosvenor. She's mm. very good.
0: Excellent. I'd love to hear you read from A Labyrinth of Kingdoms. Would you do that?
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, I'll read, the, I'll read the prologue, it's the first couple pages of the book, okay. and um, it sets up who Barth is and, and where he is. The young scientist knew he would soon die of thirst. Last night, far across the desert plain, he had seen bonfires built by his companions to guide him back to the caravan. But he was too weak and feverish to move, with no strength to gather wood for an answering fire. He shot his pistol twice, but the Saharan night absorbed the sound. No reply came. Behind him rose the peak called the Palace of the Demons. His Tuareg guides had warned him not to antagonize the powerful desert spirits by trespassing on their sacred mountain. He scoffed at their superstitions. He was a scientist, trained by the greatest scholars in Europe, and he was fit and strong. He suspected that this verboten home of demons might be some ancient place of worship where he might find inscriptions or carvings that added to the world's store of knowledge nothing could keep him from exploring such a place at any cost he said a phrase he didn't yet fully understand the expedition's leader asked him not to go alone the young scientist shrugged him off as overcautious but persuaded a younger colleague to come along he agreed to meet the expedition at the next well as he often did impatient with the caravan's slow pace now his self-confidence looked like fatal arrogance first he underestimated the distance to the mountain he also hadn't expected the extensive plain of black pebbles, so tiring to traverse and scorching from the radiant heat. Nor had he foreseen the deep ravine that protected the mountain like a moat, adding more distance. His companion, exhausted, had turned back there, but he refused to retreat. When he finally reached the mountaintop, he found nothing but wild, jumbled boulders as if titans had been at war. He began the descent. By noon, he was out of water. His exertions under the summer Saharan sun drained him. He kept moving, though he now had no idea where the caravan was or his position in relationship to it. In mid-afternoon, he saw some huts and hobbled toward them, desperate for water. They were abandoned. He dragged himself beneath a slender, leafless tree that stood alone on the arid plain. He watched for rescuers. Near sunset, a string of camels in the distance sparked some hope, but it dissolved, a mirage. Fever kept him from sleeping that night. Dawn cheered him until he realized that this day's sun would finish him. He changed position as it rose, crawling after the shadow cast by the tree's slim trunk. As he began dying, his body pulled moisture from wherever it could find any to keep his heart pumping. His joints stiffened, his lips cracked, his tongue swelled from lack of saliva. Around noon, when there was only enough shade for his head, thirst drove him mad. He cut his arm and sucked blood from the wound. The effort threw him into delirium. As the sun set, he flickered in and out of consciousness, his mind drifting. His dreams and ambitions had burned to cinders on this flat wasteland. He would not make spectacular scholarly discoveries that changed Europe's perception of Africa. He would not visit the ancient kingdom of Bornu on Lake Chad or the Fulani Empire of Sokoto. He would not explore the mysteries of Timbuktu. His contract with the British Foreign Office would die with him. Instead of fame... His reward would be a footnote in the history of African exploration, another futile death, among so many others. He would not end his days among the scholars of Europe, but here, a husk in the shadow of a gaunt tree. He commended himself to God and closed his eyes. After a time, from a distance, he heard the ball of a camel. It was the most delightful music I ever heard in my life, he later wrote. Like Lazarus, he had been given a second chance, and he promised himself to make the most of it.
0: Hmm, thank you so much. That was Steve Kemper reading from *A Labyrinth of Kingdoms*, a thousand miles through Islamic Af- Africa, and uh, published by Norton just this past June. I think if uh, it, when this becomes an audiobook, I think you should read it. I I, I would love to love to hear it read by you. Um, what impressed Yeah, no, you you have an, a nice voice, and, and it's and I love to hear authors who have good voices read their own books so uh, mm-hmm. anyway i uh I'm curious if well actually first, what impressed me about your book is that you have made the slice of history fascinating and um and it seems that i don't know if it's with history because I sort of missed that day in school <laughs> and uh <laughs> and my love of history uh never grew beyond uh a little tiny uh, bush, I think, um, so that the writing of sort of historical material has to be really good to to really catch my interest because i i, I, I don 't know my brain isn 't configured that way or something, but i'm curious about then your um, your process or your approach to craft because it seems that most writing, if not all writing, requires extensive rewriting to create that quality no matter what the topic or subject and so i wonder if you would talk a little bit about your approach to craft and and your process
1: hmm. um boy that's such a big one isn't it i uh, <laughs> i agree with you i think craft makes the difference between something that people want to read and 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 something that people put down and so i spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep people reading and um After a while, it does become second nature. You know what you need to do to to intensify the drama, to ease off a little bit, uh, when to vary the rhythm uh, of what's happening, so that the reader gets a break in a way. Um, And then also, the way I set up each chapter is with what I call curtain droppers. I want I know where I'm going with each chapter. I know where it's going to end. and it's going to end on a note that makes the reader want to turn the page um, to find out what happens next. Because that's always the, the question that I keep at the forefront of my mind when I'm writing a narrative. What happens next? The reader needs to be asking that all the time, subconsciously, so that they want to turn the page. And uh, the the craft comes in with, um, with doing it in a way that is not Indiana Jones, where it's just one damn thing after another, but it's... Uh, you're, you're learning surprising things as, as you're going through this adventure. That's what I like. I want to not only be entertained, but to be learning, to be surprised, mm-hmm. not just by the events, but by the meaning. So the, I want there to be some intellectual payoff as well as, uh, uh, narrative payoff, I guess you could say. And so that's, that's where the craft comes in. How to weave in the historical context, how to weave in what's going on elsewhere while you're, you're main character is plunging ahead somewhere in Africa how those threads uh, connect or don't connect and the consequences of that which were huge of course for Barth um, so uh, you know i am i, am I making sense I'm, yeah, not, I'm, you sure? I'm kind of babbling on
0: well so did you do you need a pl- or a, an outline for this sort of book then so that you know what each chapter is going to do
1: well yeah i do i i have a vague outline with, with it and. I'm a pretty firm believer in chronology. Mm -hmm, (laughs) It's -hmm. it's worked since we were sitting around with dinosaur bones (laughs) and chewing on them and listening to stories. So I think it probably is still the best way to 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 make those synapses fire in your audience's mind. Um, I'm not averse to um, flashbacks and so on, and I and I have used them and do use them, but mostly you want to know you want to keep the time sequence. clear so that the reader knows exactly where he or she is in the story and in, ge- in geographical time and place and everything. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, I mean, with Barth, it's easy. He, he he started his trip. He went XXX. He got home. He did XXX, and he died. So there's, there's my structure. But that's nothing. That tells me nothing. I have to figure out where uh, to make those curtain droppers so that... Um, there's, a, there's a, a segment, and each chapter is fun to read, mm-hmm. and yet you don't want to stop there because you know that something good is going to happen next because that's part of the curtain dropper. You, know, you, you wrap something up, but then you promise something else is about to occur.
0: And I suppose then there's also that element of suspense, how to keep you know, a certain amount of suspense going so that you do want to keep reading to see what happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple formula that really, that I keep in mind. That is, there's a situation, there's a complication, and there's a resolution that creates another situation, which then is going to get complicated, which, you know, and so on. And that's really, that's, that's the structure of narrative in its most basic form. And if you can just expand that into a chapter, then you've got something pretty good. And sometimes you expand it into just a couple of paragraphs, because there's a situation, complication, and a resolution. That occurs within a couple of paragraphs, and you move on to the next situation that's been created.
0: Well, that's, it that sounds like fiction, too. I mean, that's, and I guess that would work for all narrative, huh?
1: Absolutely. I, th- I, th- I think that, you know, good, there's not much difference between narrative nonfiction and and narrative fiction. It's, except that I have to stick with things that mm-hmm. are true and that I can verify and, and uh, authenticate.
0: Mm hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. I, I've... That's wonderful mm-hmm. um, you, you know I um, you, you said earlier that that you were looking around for other projects because magazine writing was drying up and yet you write for for quite uh, major publications. I spent some time on your website the other day and I was noticing that you have such wide- ranging pieces and ideas and um, you know from one piece called The Real West about film making in Lone Pine California or Vermont sleeping roads about a dormant law regarding Vermont roads, or Skunk Man about an assistant professor obsessed with skunks, and you know I became so curious about how you how your ideas take hold or or how you set them in motion, and and put them into such a form that you can find a magazine then or an editor that wants to publish it.
1: Uh, well, part of, part of my problem has always been that I'm all over the place I don't have an expertise so no one thinks of me first for anything <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not I'm not an environmental writer and I'm not a natural history writer although I write about those things often I'm not I don't write about I'm not an arts writer but I've written you, know, you see what I mean I, mm-hmm. I, whatever I get interested in I, I follow up on and so that's been that's the way my mind works that's the way I live and so that's the way I approach freelancing it's not the smartest way to do it, but for me, it's the most fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've, if those stories that you mentioned, you'll notice that they're, they're all kind of quirky. A, a skunk Man is about this, this guy who studies skunks and is immune to the smell, and that's mm-hmm. why he can catch them by the tail and you know, get squirted on and still study them. <laughs> or Lo- that, that film festival in, in Lone Pan, which is just one of the oddest pieces of Americana, mm-hmm. you can come across people dressed up in, old te- in costumes from old TV Western characters or or the other one the the, the ghost roads in Vermont mm-hmm. um these aren't stories that you read about um in the in the in the paper that often so um I look for oddities that interest me and that can have a uh, that that aren't just the biggest zucchini at the fair you know mm-hmm. not not that kind of oddity but something that's rich with possibility and characters and um that's that kind of story and then I really do like to do adventure stories and and Natural history stories about um, animals because field biologists are some of the most passionate, crazy people there are. Mm-hmm. And I, I love being outside. So there's no, there's no rhyme or reason, I'm afraid. It's free verse.
0: Well, I'm, I'm so glad you do that because I love your pieces and I just, uh, I'm a fan. So I thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the show today. It's, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me, Barbara. It was fun.
0: You're welcome. That was Steve Kemper. His book is A Labyrinth of Kingdoms, one th- or sorry, 10,000 Miles Through Islamic Africa, published by Norton. His website is stevekemper.com, and uh, I recommend that you all check it out, really, especially if you're at all interested in narrative nonfiction. There's so many good pieces, and as you read through these, you come up with your own ideas, and you go, well, you know what, this could be, an interesting piece for a good magazine, you know. Rather than uh, thinking thinking inside the box, it kind of pushes you out a little bit uh, to to coin such a overused phrase. Sorry about that. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Bridget Hoyt should be with us, so don't go anywhere. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI FM eighty eight point nine. In Irvine, we're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus. We're on the web at KUCI.org. So if you have a smartphone, you can actually listen to us on your phone by going to the KUCI website. and the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little link that says Listen Live. And uh, hit one of those little little links. I think I listen on 128, but uh, see what works for you. And, uh, you can, you can be on your morning walk, run, whatever, uh, listening to the show. We're also on iTunes at College Radio. Again, I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and we are back, um, with Bridget Hoyda. Bridget lives and writes in an imaginary subdivision off the coast of Southern California. She's worked as a librarian, a DJ, a high school teacher, and a barista. More recently, she's taught at UC Irvine right here and the University of Southern California and Saddleback College, which is also down here in Orange County. Bridget is the recipient of an Anna Bing Arnold Fellowship and the Edward Moses Prize for Fiction. She was a finalist in the Joseph Henry Jackson San Francisco Intersection for the Arts Award for a first novel and the William Faulkner Pirates Alley First Novel Contest. Her short stories have appeared in the Berkeley Fiction Review, Mary, and Faultline Journal, among others, and she was a finalist in the Iowa Review Fiction Prize and uh, the Glimmer Trains New Writer's Short Story Contest. Her po- poetry has been recognized as an Academy of American Poets Prize finalist and was a future professor- professoriate scholar at USC. So L.A. is her first novel, and hopefully as we go on I'll be uh, speaking more clearly. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Barbara. How are you? Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, you have a beautiful book, and um, I'd love to just hear you talk about how it came to be, what, how you started it, what what kind of grabbed hold
2: and, and sent you on your way in terms of writing it. Well, I was, um, I, wasn't, I was born in Iowa, but we were there for about three months, and then we moved to California, and I was raised in Northern California, up in the California, um, San Joaquin Central Valley. And so um, I did my undergrad at Berkeley, so I was very much a Northern California girl at heart. And in Northern California, based on water and many number of other reasons, I always felt that we were sort of ingrained to dislike Southern California. So when I moved from Berkeley to Los Angeles um, to do my Ph.D. in literature and creative writing at USC, it was extremely difficult for me. And I think that very act was how most of So L.A. was born. Um, I, You know, I, I joke about this, but I think I really was embodying some sort of B-movie cliché because I really did sort of, you know, take my first steps onto the streets of Los Angeles in Birkenstocks in a tie-dyed sundress. And I ended up in this, you know, the USC campus is extraordinary. And there were just all of these tanned and toned women laying out in bikinis on the quad. and You know, (laughs) Berkeley's clothing optional, but in a very different way than USC was. And so um, it really was a huge adjustment period for me, um, just understanding the L.A. lifestyle and L.A. culture. And I became fascinated with beauty culture in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I was teaching at the time. I was teaching a class at USC called Social Issues and Sex and Gender which I think was, you know, a really great place to start if you're going to look into exploring the beauty culture and the effects of materialism and and body augmentation on women in general. And so um, it was from that class that, you know, when teaching that class and teaching a lot of, you know, 18-year-old women who were on the brink of finding themselves but then would also show up scantily clad and in high heels to a feminist studies course. And it really caused me to question what, feminism was, you know, what qualifies, I had all these preconceived notions coming out of Berkeley, and then to be put down in a different environment where, you know, women asserted themselves in different ways and made different choices um, was really fascinating to me, and that's pretty much how So L.A. was born. It was born out of a lot of those little moments all strung together, and I just started writing and didn't stop until I had the book. Interesting. So... um So L.A. is
0: written in very short chapters. Yes, it is. Is that a part of that? And and did you write them sequentially, or or did you put down chapters as they came to you and then decided that at some point you would have to structure it?
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, It actually, So L.A. started as a series of just short stories, Um, the the I guess like the the nebulous of it was a short story called The Blonde Joke. Mm -hmm. And it was a blonde at a party who overhears a joke about herself being made, about her blondness. And it was sort of, you know, she was a very smart woman and et cetera. And and it's sort of how she watches her husband. You know, she's sort of hiding behind this door and she hears her husband telling this joke and she realizes that she, in fact, is the blonde in the joke. Mm -hmm. and She has become that woman and so that was the short story that's the one that actually won the glimmer train prize and and other different awards and that's what started the novel so to speak and um it actually ended up you know once the book ended up with a a better structure it it was edited out of the book completely (laughs) which kind Mm -hmm. of breaks my heart that goes into that that writing philosophy of you have to kill your darlings so you know it started me it got the book going And then I had to ruthlessly, you know, cut it out of the book in order to give the book structure. But I feel that the revelation and the sadness of that particular short story as it was born really gave me the emotional core for Magdalena Mm -hmm. as she progresses through the book.
0: That 's so interesting, because you know this is the first time we 've talked the first time i 've heard your voice, and you yeah. sound very upbeat and happy and you know kind of sunny and but the book has this dark tone that I love and um, and your author photo has sort of a dark tone to it too so um talk about
2: about how how that is that yes um, i've actually you know this is not the first time obviously that i 've heard this about the book and you know, it was, you asked the, the previous question about how I ended up structuring it, and one of the, the conscious choices that I made was to make the book as filmic as possible. Mm-hmm. So I did adapt these very short staccato, you know, like you would mentioned, some of the chapters are just a sentence or even a paragraph long, while others are longer, but by adapting the film template and I, I looked at Robert McKee's story exclamation point how to write a winning screenplay and I basically walked myself through it and I thought well what if you novelized a screenplay if you actually broke it down into so that the book has take one take two take three all the way up to five has the director's cut there's a lot of filmic action going on in the book and I hoped that that might help um, one give, give it structure and then two help sort of counterbalance um the dark or you know satirical tone of mm. the book because mm-hmm. yeah i you know i i do i love my life i love my students i love teaching i love literature and i really did come up with a, a pretty dark character <laughs> and she is she's reeling from a lot of emotional pain and and i think that perhaps you know and as we work through fiction as writers um it was she she allowed me um a voice or a certain point of accessibility to being able to, you know, verbalize on the page. A lot of some of my own sentiments um, you know, about Los Angeles beauty culture that I couldn't necessarily articulate in actual life. And obviously the book is fiction and the character is fiction and, you know, that sort of thing, but it really did help me channel a lot of those, these transitional emotions. Hmm.
0: Interesting. You are all listening to Writers on Writing. I'm with Bridget Hoyda. Is that how you pronounce your last name? That's correct, Okay, yes. and her novel is So L.A., published by Lettered mm. Press. Um, so did you know, I don't know, the crisis or, or climax of the book? Did you? How much did you know starting out?
2: I didn't know much starting out. I knew I wanted to stay in the head of this singular woman, and I knew that I wanted a blur between what was actually happening and what she perceived to be happening. So straight away, I started working without quotation marks or or proper quote marks in the Mm -hmm, book, mm -hmm. and I really wanted her, you know, when you overhear something at a party, I'm I'm very interested in storytelling. Um, I'm also very interested in narrative mistruth, Mm -hmm. so the idea that, you know, I'm saying something that everybody's hearing and taking their own intentions to what they hear and then recrafting those sentences the second they leave my mouth into their own understanding of the sentences. And I wanted to figure out a way to do that on the page and to sort of um, wrap the character around that. And it's not necessarily unreliable narration because I believe that she believes her truth is the truth, Mm -hmm. but to sort of nod to the reader to let them know that as well.
0: That's interesting. I like what you said. What did you say? Um, Narrative untruth? Yeah, narrative mistruth, yes. Narrative mistruth. Say a little bit more about that because especially when I think I mean I think writers at least new writers maybe feel that they're cheating if they're basing something on something they went through or they have to really stick to a story they were told or else they're not being true to the story even though they're writing fiction. Right. Yeah. No. Um
2: well what I'm always looking for a way to tell not what really happened but what could possibly happen, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that narrative, or the narrative mistruth takes place in that possibility, in that potential possibility of what might happen. And so, um, you know, Joan Didion, who is one of my unabashedly all-time idols ever, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, she's got a lot to say on this as well, and one of the quotes that she says that is just, you know, ingrained on my heart, so to speak, is, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those lived, storied moments. Um, In my novel, it opens with Magdalena falling off a boat, and then it moves both forward and backward in time. And I did that intentionally. And, you know, I was listening to you talk to Steve earlier, and I was so impressed with his idea of, you know, he's got this beautiful template for chronology and geography and place and time, and unfortunately I'm the exact opposite of that. Um, With my book, it moves both forward and backward in time. And like I said, I'm not trying to be intentionally confusing or vague. But what I was trying to do is replicate how most people tell stories. They begin in the middle, and then they jump around, and they forget, and they amend, and they call attention to the most important parts. And the listener, at least in my opinion, Rarely ever exclusively listens, but instead they interject or they provide their own connections or, you know, they remember the time that they had a red scarf and fell off a boat, you know, and mm-hmm. so those stories overlap with observations and experiences. And so I think that that also, in terms of the mistelling as a beginning writer or, you know, I mean, Percival Everett, um, who was my mentor mm-hmm. at USC, He actually helped me find the beginning of this book. When the blonde joke was eliminated, he, you know, he gave me this immediate rest moment where he was like, you know, what if you just start when she falls off the boat? And I must have fought that for two and a half years before it finally made sense to me and I had to keep working around that. And so I think, you know, as beginning writers you make a lot of mistakes and then when you finally Trust in your own voice and in your own telling enough to think, okay, it's okay to start in complete and total confusion and just push her off the boat and see what happens. Mm-hmm. That really opened just this magical, you know, door for me, so to speak, to walk through and to, you know, hold Magdalena's hand as she walked through and, and really got us, you know, the story going rather than, I must have, you know, tried to restart and start the novel I don't know, 17 times, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this way you just start. You start, here's the action, start, go, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I really love that, and I'm so grateful to Percival for pushing me off the boat in that way.
0: <laughs> well, I remember something. He either said it he, on the show here, or maybe his wife, Danzy Senna, said it when she was down at a salon um, down in Cronodamar last year. But she, he said, um, I'm, I'm not a perfectionist, I'm a completionist. Oh, that's beautiful! Isn't that great?
1: Yeah,
2: that is lovely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I try to remember that because I tend to be more of a perfectionist, and I, you know, have you know unpublished novels in my file cabinet in the studio that you know will never will never see the light of day because they're they're there, they're not perfect, and
2: yeah, you know. I call them that too. The novel that we have under our bed, right? Every mm-hmm. writer has at mm-hmm. least three or four that's in the shoebox or the, the the e-file on the computer that absolutely, yeah. So anyway, well, that explains why he's so tremendously prolific. He's so (laughs) prolific.
0: He's so prolific. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just anyway, what you were you were saying just sort of reminded me of that. It's just go, you know, just don't spend a whole lot of time just trying to figure it out. Go and figure it out as you go.
2: And we just had you know just absolute magical workshops with him at USC. Um, I was the first class of the the PhD program there, and so we really. We're sort of all getting started together, and I think in the beginning there were just four, maybe five of us. I think there were four fiction writers and four poets, and so we were all taking classes together, and the fiction writers would take poetry and the poets would take fiction, which I think is genius. I think everybody should do that. We can learn so much from poets about, I mean, they would just go on about a single word, why I chose to spell the word through, T-H-R-U, And, you know, that could be a half-hour conversation, and I never thought of it, you know, in that way before. Mm -hmm. And and it was the same thing with Percival's classes. I mean, he was just relentless in his desire to make us the best writers we could be. And, I mean, I really think that that shows I'm just so flattered to be amongst the group of people that is coming out of that program And and just, you know, again, my... Gratitude for Percival and the program. I just can't say enough about it. It was just extraordinary. Hmm. Well, I would love to hear you read from So La. Would you do that? I would love to. Um, like I mentioned, the book is you know divided into filmic cuts, so there's different takes: take one, take two, take three. Um, but before I started those, I, I lead in with something called the story problem. So I'm setting up the story or rather the problem of the story. So this is the story problem from So L.A. Okay. The nine people I know in Los Angeles, and by know, I don't mean people I lunch with. I mean the nine people who have seen me naked. Those nine people, they'd never believe it. But sometimes in the San Joaquin Valley, it gets so hot the fields spontaneously catch fire. Just lick and burn an entire crop of asparagus, Toe-Case Seedless, Hothouse, or what have you, are quite literally up in smoke. They didn't believe it the first time, and they won't believe it the second, when I tell them about the ash that folds like walnuts into the swimming pool and the radio warnings to keep the dog off the asphalt. People from Los Angeles aren't good at willing suspension of disbelief, unless, of course, it involves Hollywood celebrity cellulite secrets and million-dollar mascara wars so I don't much expect them to empathize with the Lodi firemen dressed in yellow gear and aiming a single hose not at the blaze but at the sky, firing water upwards into the clouds and watching it waterfall against the air and onto the charred umber. But before I go too far, I suppose you could say the reverse is also true, that with help I could find nine nice people from the San Joaquin who would never believe that in Los Angeles you can take a class called striptease aerobics, get a boob job through your belly button, or when pregnant, actually schedule the premature delivery of your infant so as not to interfere with your bridge game or your, billion, your husband's billion-dollar business deals. Wait, who am I kidding? No one plays bridge in Beverly Hills. Not anymore. But that's besides the point. The point is, you can schedule the birth of your babe three weeks in advance of its actual due date because the last three weeks is the point of no return as far as your abs are concerned. So you can schedule a cesarean in an optimal situations, read all situations except the occasional indie actress-turned-earth-mother who, in a fit of Sundance nostalgia, decides to have her son in the saline-filtered spa of her beach house. The OBGYN, who is also a certified plastic surgeon, makes the incision and throws in a tummy tuck for a nominal fee. I suppose if forced, I could find nine nice folks from the San Joaquin who wouldn't believe a bit of it. Not the scheduling, not the cesarean, and certainly not the part about fishing out the placenta before finishing off the lift and tuck. But, and this is something I feel confident about, having lived in both L.A. and the San Joaquin, it would be much, much harder to find them. Not only because spontaneous weather-related fire is inherently easier to believe than neonatal manipulation, but also because when pressed, people will believe almost anything about Los Angeles. Take me. What if I told you that right now I'm bobbing about in the Pacific Ocean without a life vest while Kelly, the yacht I fell from, continues on her course? You'd believe me, right? Right. You'd believe that sometimes in Los Angeles it's easier to float between the legs of a man you hardly know than it is to reach an arm towards your husband on deck as he casts a buoy overboard. Mm. Thank you so much. That was Thank Bridget White
0: reading from So L.A., published by Lettered Press. Um, it's just so funny. You're just so upbeat and the tone is so dark. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's great, because that Beautiful means... Beautiful inconsistencies, right? Well, that means
0: then that when you get, in, when you start working, you somehow find your way into the tone again, and you stay there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um,
2: you know, it's one of those things, poet Victoria Chang, who was also in the program, mm-hmm. I remember she was in an interview on on something, and they were interviewing her about, you know, being a new mom and this and that. And, She had this awesome quote about, you know, yeah, I go to Mommy and Me and then I go home and write about, you know, flowers that devour people and death, Mm -hmm, you know. (laughs) mm -hmm. And I think it is. It's that balance. It's that having... Um, You know, it's, uh, gosh, was it Colette who said a novel about love cannot be written while making love, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you lived in the darkness, I don't know that you'd ever find your way out long enough to be able to write it. Mm -hmm. And conversely, because I am and I feel so incredibly fortunate to have, you know, so many fabulous family and friends and support network and... You know, and I live in this amazing sunshine state, right? (laughs) I can have all that and then I can actually, you know, go into my office or, you know, I joke lately that it's the carpool line on the back of a receipt, you know, while I'm waiting for my kids to come out and I can... I can get those other moments mm-hmm.
0: it's yeah. A, yeah it's really <laughs> interesting. Talk a little bit about the the uh, process of publication because we have just a few minutes left, and we always talk about that on the show. So talk about then this your
2: your novel becoming a book. It was a very long process um I probably well I began the novel almost eleven years ago. And then, like I said, I've had two kids in the middle, so that'll, you know, stop anyone just a bit. Um, everyone kept saying, oh, you'll just write while the kids sleep. But my <laughs> kids have never slept. They don't sleep. They're not sleepers. Um, so that was a little tricky. So there was, you know, some time taken out for both of them. Um, but, yeah, I, I think on um, several different venues, Publishing, So L.A., was incredibly difficult. Um, I was actually told by one East Coast agent that the novel was too Hollywood insider mm-hmm. and that no one would want to read a book about L.A. written with such an inside perspective, which just at, at one so point, odd. it absolutely was, It flattered me. I was like, wow, that's a gorgeous rejection. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it infuriated me, and what I found writing a novel that, you know, one doesn't end up with the protagonist, you know, happily pregnant and married at the end of the book, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is a novel that is so California centric or West Coast centric. Um, it was it was difficult when you're dealing with the publishing industry who was primarily in New York. And so I was really lucky to find um Sally von Hatzma, who um, Chris Abani actually recommended me to her and she is, you know, she's a West Coast agent through and through and is just the most fabulous woman and was an incredible advocate for the book. And we shopped it traditionally for about two years, so that means all the big presses and that sort of thing. And. And again, kept getting sort of these, you know, these beautifully veiled rejections where they loved so many things about it, but ultimately it was too California, it was too dark, it was, you know, could we just put some more high heels on it and market it as the West Coast Sex in the City, which was exactly <laughs> what I was writing against, you know, mm-hmm. and so that was really tricky. And so um, ultimately, I ended up looking for. Um, other ways to get the book published. And so, you know, I looked into a lot of different venues and small presses and decided to go with a press, mm-hmm. which is as it sounds, right? It's a really teeny tiny press, <laughs> um, which actually ended up being just the most beautiful experience because I was able to, you know, work with, well, in most instances, friends or people who quickly became my friends because the process is so small. They typically publish, you know, one or two books a year and, you know, anything from cookbooks to books on map making to literary fiction too and so it was a it was just a really extraordinary experience because you know i knew everybody on a first name basis and it it was you know not to compare myself to the great masters but i kept having this like you know beautiful nostalgic feeling wash over me like this must be what it would be like if you had a printing press in your, you know, your basement and you were working with your sister Vanessa and you got ink on your hands, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't quite that, but, you know, I still feel that, that I ended up with um, a, an aesthetically beautiful book as well, and I don't think that would have been as possible without the tremendous help of, you know, my editor and agent and, you know, even the people who ran the press physically. Um, you know, I was—I was—I'm very much a, a book. I um, just go crazy over, you know, books and ephemera and things like that. So the fact that the book had French flaps and deckled edges and linen paper—it just made me over the moon, crazy with joy. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a beautiful book. Thank you. I love the cover. And I just, yeah, it made me just—you know—was really. And then they all got it too. I felt like you know we were all working together on. I don't want the scrapbook is not the right, but you know it's <laughs> some sort of beautiful project, everybody had their little you know each each of everybody had their task, and we all worked together to pull off this amazing book, but you know it was a lot of work there wasn't you know i mean not to to say that it was just boom, we had this beautiful piece of work i mean you, I had no idea how much time and energy went into you know physically crafting a book from mm-hmm. the ground stages up and that was an amazing process as well, learning that and being able to be a part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, I'm I'm so glad your book is out there. And I'm, I thank you so much for being on the show. Let's, thank uh, you
2: so much. I really appreciated talking
0: with you. Let's give your website, com. Yes. Beautiful website, too. Really. Thank you. Love it. Thank you so much, Bridget. All right. You have a fabulous uh, morning. You, too. That <laughs> was Bridget Hoyda. Her book, her beautiful book is So L.A., and it's published by Lettered Press. Um, and again, check out our website. It's such a gorgeous website. This is the end of the show for this week. Um, we'll be back again next Wednesday. I forget who's on. Kurt Anderson, perhaps? Hmm. I don't know. It's on my. It's on my website, uh, <laughs> penonfire.com, or on the blog penonfire.blogspot.com. And I have a summer show going on on Mondays at 5 o'clock right here, and uh, it's uh, sort of a different thing. It focuses on Southern California, people, and issues, although we had a fish activist on this past Monday whom I loved, and I'm going to become a fish activist now. Um, Anyway, that's the end of our time See you again real soon. Have a good week writing. And uh, yeah, do write. It's summer, but you still have to stay in the chair. At least some of the day. Thanks so much.